Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. The PCE price index, the Fed's preferred inflation measure, rose 0.6% in January and 4.7% on a core year-over-year basis. The latest reading signals that inflation is not falling as expected and that the Fed might still have work to do. So where should investors go from here? And is the risk of a recession stronger than previously thought? Joining us today to discuss all of this and more is David Wolf, Portfolio Manager on Fidelity's Global Asset Allocation Team. David shares that the GAA team is currently focusing on the medium term, not the short term. He knows the endpoint of Fed tightening and tries not to get mixed up in all the noise. David and host Pamela Ritchie discuss Canadian, US, and global markets today. Regarding European markets, David notes that last fall everyone was worried about gas and the economy shutting down. But the weather in Europe has generally been good, leading to uplift in markets. David also shares that the GAA team has some defensive positioning for the long term by using the currency markets, noting that the US dollar has been reliably negatively correlated with risk in the equity markets. Today's podcast was recorded on February 24th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Let's begin ultimately getting to how you are positioning, how you're allocating the portfolios themselves or what, what that looks like, just by sort of your read on how things are going right now from a macro perspective. Let's, let's throw the door open. What do we need to know sort of first, second, third? As you mentioned, you know, we had the inflation data, the PCE index, and it was, as you said, hotter than expected. And it's gotten people questioning this narrative of a kind of Goldilocks scenario. Because what we've seen in the data is the economy has been resilient, which is great, and inflation has been falling, which is great. And I think it's lent hope to people that, well, this can keep up. You know, why can't we have strong economic data and falling inflation? But the unfortunate matter is you can't. You can't. <laughs> and the, the reason that you okay. can't I mean, is... It's good to actually hear because there's a lot of yeah. confusion around that is, I mean, there's the narrative around soft landing, no yeah. landing, whatever. From a central bank's point of view, you need the economy to weaken to get the slack into the system that gets inflation down. And if you never get the weakening and you never get the slack, you're never going to get inflation down. So it's unsustainable to have a strong economy at this level, at this point, and a full decline in inflation back to the 2% target. So what we're faced with, what the central bank's faced with, are not is not really uncertainty about where you end up. We're going to end up in a recession. I don't know if it's six months, 12 months, 18 months, whatever. We have to end up there because that's the only way you get inflation under control. The question is, one, what path do you take? And two, and this is the critical question that I think markets are grappling with even this morning, is how far does the Fed have to go to ensure the slowdown that they need? And you know, three months ago, people thought it was 4.5%. Now I think it's 5.5%. Could still be higher. But that's really what, what folks are struggling with today. So I, I just sort of, there's more to say on this, but I just want to sort of draw in on on that point of where, where 
third is the story of what growth might be, this so-called R-star discussion, but basically the idea of what kind of growth we can get without all the inflation. Like, where, where do we land with some of the inflation is good for the growth story? It's sort of helpful to get up off where we've been. Now we're up in the skies in comparison. But is there something in there that we don't come down all the way and we basically live with some inflation for quite a long time? I mean, how do you look at that? Okay, so there, there are a number of things to unpack yeah. uh, in there. Uh, and you mentioned R-star, so why don't we start there? So R-star is, is what we think of as the neutral real interest rate, and that's what central banks think about. And that number has been around 1%, again, real, so right. inflation-adjusted. It's probably going up. It's, it's kind of hard to estimate. Then you have to layer on, well, how much inflation to get the regular nominal interest rate. And what is the right inflation number for that? You could say 2%, which is the Fed's target, the Bank of Canada's target. You could say 3 which, as you said, may ultimately be where we end up. So now you get up to about 4% as neutral on an interest rate. And then you have to ask, well, how much above neutral, how restrictive do you have to get in order to affect the kind of slowdown in the economy that you need to get inflation under control? And again, we don't know what that number is, and, and the Fed is groping towards it, but it's pretty clear given the recent data, that it's higher than, than we previously thought. So then you roll it forward, what happens? Well, ultimately, as I mentioned, you are going to get a slowdown. Again, it's just a question of how long and how far the Fed has to go to get that kind of slowdown. And then the question is, how much pain are they willing to inflict on the economy in order to return inflation fully to target? Like, are you willing to go from 3% to 2% inflation at the expense of 12% unemployment? The answer is probably not. Right. So I think where we end up is structurally a somewhat higher level of inflation than we've been used to in the past, and growth that, you know, after whatever period of recession can resume, it's just not going to be as robust as we've seen in, in prior years. And that has less to do with Fed policy, more to do with just the fundamentals of the economy, with a shrinking um, rate of growth of the labor force, and productivity not being that great either. But that's kind of a, a longer-term issue. And so, and so then you sort of get stuck with a slightly shorter term and, a, you know, obviously a longer horizon. Tell us a little bit w within sort of that story of how you need to be allocated, how you need to position ultimately to sort of weather whatever is going on right now, but, but looking to the longer term. We, number one, and, and you know, in line with, with uh, what I just said, we do want to be relatively cautious and relatively defensive here. We think we know where we're going to end up. We don't know the path that we're going to take to get there, but again, Fed needs to gain control of inflation. They can only do that with a slowdown. And to get the slowdown, they need to raise rates. So that all is, is very clear. And the market has been, at least in the last couple of months, relatively sanguine about that, and I think overly so. So how do we play that defense as, as asset allocators? So there are kind of three ways that we can do it. The first way is just basically sell everything and hide under a rock. That's never the right thing to do. That's okay. not th something so that's that... That's not what you're doing. No, that's not what we're doing. Yeah. We can be judicious with our equity exposures, so reduce our overall equity posture, allocate a little bit more to our more defensive-minded managers, and so we're, we're doing some of that. We also recognize timing the market is really hard. We want to be involved. We have managers who are very good at navigating these kinds of environments. So that's a little bit of our, our defensive posture, but as again, we're, we're still involved. The second thing that you can do is buy bonds. Yeah. And a lot of folks have been asking about and, and pushing for, and I know a lot of competitors saying, well, you know, you want to load up on the bond market here. We're not doing that either. And the reason that we're not doing that is really twofold. So the first is 
Yes, some value has been restored in, in bond markets, but the curve is, is heavily inverted, which tells you something about recession risk in the first place. But if the curve is heavily inverted, what that basically means is you're getting 4% in the US on a 10-year bond. You're gonna be getting 5.5% plus on short-term securities. So why do you wanna take the risk of the volatility of longer bonds when you're not getting paid as much as just putting it into the shorter end? Um, so, I mean, another way of putting that is how far can bonds rally when they're already so far under where funding rates are? The second issue with bonds is, as we've seen over the past 18 months or so, they're not always a great hedge for your stock position. Usually that correlation is negative. Last year it was positive, so stocks and bonds went down at the same time. But and the thought was with higher rates that, you know, we're, we're in the clear of that all those correlations being so sticky. Yeah, there's no reason to believe that. Okay. Um, you get more carry because the yields are higher, but in an environment of higher inflation volatility, that's still gonna foster more of a positive correlation between stocks and bonds versus a negative correlation. And that hasn't really changed. So earlier this year, you still had the positive correlation is just stocks and bonds were both going up, which people seem to mind a lot less than, than both that's going right. down. Hurt today. Us. Yeah, today you have both going down, but it's still a positive correlation. So all that says to us is that's not really where we want to be focusing in terms of defense because it's not clear how protective that duration is going to be. So the third option, which is the one that we've been pursuing in our allocations, is using currency markets okay. for that defense. And in particular, the, the one asset that's shown itself to be reliably negatively correlated with risk with equity markets is the U.S. dollar. And again, we're seeing that this morning in terms of the we price are. action. And you know, there are days like today, and, and we think there are going to be days going ahead as well, where US dollar cash is the only green thing on the board. And that's how you protect. That's the most efficient way we can still have money in the market, but also have an allocation that provides some cushion against something that can go up when everything else is going down. So that's, that's how we're approaching it. That's that. really fascinating I mean, because there's an awful lot of discussion about the dollar having peaked, you know, we're we're looking, you know, and as a strategy for EM, perhaps that's a big part of that story. Obviously, is this a more short-term thing, or is it is it actually quite long-term? I mean, how, how do you look at the dollar sort of story for the next? I don't know. Let's go medium terms, eighteen months. So I, I think the the dollar can still be resilient on a directional basis. The U.S. Okay. dollar, yeah. again, it's it's less to do with a, a view on U.S. dollar is going to you know, 150 versus the Canadian dollar, or whatever it is, and more the correlations to everything else. I mean, I we work in correlation space because mm -hmm. we're asset allocators and we have our right. fingers in almost every pie. So we need to know how all that works together. And again, you're going to have days where the only thing that can go up is the U.S. dollar. So we want to have allocations that allow us to have something that goes up when everything else is, is going down. Now, with respect to the currency, so let's drill down specifically on the Canadian dollar okay. versus the US dollar. So that all holds as far as those correlations are concerned. And if you look at a chart of the S&P 500 versus the Canadian dollar over the past 18 months, it's almost perfectly correlated or right. negatively correlated. Negative. When equities go down, Canadian dollar goes down, US dollar goes up. So we're taking advantage of that. From a, a directional point of view, though, it also makes sense to us that you're going to have an appreciating US dollar 
versus the Canadian dollar. And the reason goes back to what we were talking about in terms of the imperative for central banks to get control of inflation and the tightening of policy they need to do that. So the U.S. economy is quite resilient to tightening. We've seen that already, and we understand it because household balance sheets are in reasonably good shape. Mortgages are 30 years, so it doesn't really matter that much yeah. that they've gone up in the meantime. And we've seen that. The Fed's gone from a quarter of a percent to th four and three quarters, and not that much has happened, so they have to go further. Yet. In Canada, yet. <laughs> yet, it and we feels can, we like... Can, we could talk about... You tell me about yet. That's what it feels like to me. Well, you tell me about yet. But, but I, would, I would draw a distinct contrast between that and what's happened in Canada, where you have very clearly a more interest rate sensitive economy. And you can see that from much higher debt levels, uh, much shorter financing conditions. You have variable rate mortgages, five-year mortgages, et cetera. So those rate changes make a, a bigger difference sooner in Canada. And you have housing, which has been a bigger and bigger share of our economy, both relative to history and relative to the U.S. So the kind of tightening that the Fed is ultimately going to have to deliver to restrain the U.S. economy, Canada can't follow hmm. because it's going to have... We can't go up that high. We can't go up that high. And the banks already said that. They said, we're yeah. at four and a half, we're stopping, we're going to reevaluate. So that interest rate differential between Canada and the U.S., which is already starting to widen, we think is going to get considerably wider. And that's the, the number one fundamental, along with currency. oil prices, commodity mm -hmm. prices, that are going to affect where the currency goes. So from both a, a protection point of view and from a directional point of view, that position to be overweight U.S. dollars in a Canadian portfolio, we think, makes sense. So okay, you've gone through sort of the equity, fixed income, or that side of it, and, and then also the currencies. If we can just go back to equity for one second. Do alts play a role at all for you at this point? Yeah, so we, there, we're always looking at, at new capabilities to put into the funds. And there are a lot of new capabilities, both in-house and elsewhere. Um, one that we've taken advantage of is, uh, so Fidelity Canada launched the Smart Hedge capability, I think it was about a month ago or yeah. so. So we've been incorporating some of that into the, the portfolios okay. where it's relevant. And that provides us, again, that, that equity exposure, but not getting over your skis and has some convexity. Uh, to it. But what I do want to talk about it, we can shift gears. Yeah, uh, US just for Treasury's a moment. questions are coming in, but let, let's go to yeah, uh, US Treasury. So I, I want to talk about, if I could, uh, the debt ceiling Great. issue. Great. We need to know your <laughs> thoughts on this because there's a lot of, oh, it's fine, or actually we need to worry. What, what do you say? So I hear a lot about, oh, it's fine, and oh, we've dealt with this before, and oh, you know, we'll figure out a way. Frankly, I mean, that's my kind of instinctive reaction to. I think it may be wrong. You think it actually might be different? I think time. it might actually be different. So first of all, we'll set the scene. So the debt ceiling, and I think most folks are, are familiar with this. So by legislation, there is a limit to how much U.S. Yeah. Treasury can borrow. And we're very close to that limit. So what do you do about that? Well, you need to change the limit. You need to change the legislation. That requires congressional action. And I think all of us can agree that um, you know that we have a historically divided and dysfunctional is maybe a way to put it at Congress. I mean, they, it took them 15 rounds of votes to elect a speaker. I don't know how they're going to get together uh, an agreement on legislation that's meaningful and, and contentious, right? So if Congress doesn't fix it, then what do you do? Well, you have the United States of America is going to default on its debt. Now, nobody wants that, or at least nobody sensible <laughs> wants right. that. Right. But what do you do if Congress doesn't actually change the debt ceiling? So there are a number of interesting options that the White House can do to address oh, really? this. 
And among them, so the 14th Amendment of the Constitution provides for, basically says, the full faith and credit of the United States should not be questioned. This was after the Civil War and right. dealt with the Confederate debt and what have you. But what some have interpreted that to mean is you actually can't default and the executive can unilaterally say we're issuing treasuries because the debt ceiling is unconstitutional. Don't really want to do that, would be legally challenged, right. would be a mess in terms of the treasury market, but you could. People have talked about the trillion dollar platinum coin, which sounds yeah. like something from The Simpsons. It does. Um, but it actually is, is not insane when you look into how you might get around this this debt ceiling idea. There are a number of other financial engineering things that you can do. But the point is, it is almost certain in my mind to be a mess until it's sorted out, Right. if it's fully sorted out. And can it be dragged out? Not really. I okay. mean, there's a something called an X date, which is when yep. the ceiling binds and you really, yep. nobody knows exactly when that is, partly depends on tax receipts through tax season and what have you. But we think it's somewhere between June and October. Mm -hmm. And we're already having to account for this in our market activities. So you don't really want securities, U.S. government securities that are maturing between June and October because you don't know if you're going to get paid right away. And right. that's already having an impact in the market. So is the price of them dropping? Um, it depends. But there is some premium being built in. Okay. And, and if you sort of run into this, it's going to be even worse. So these are all uncertainties. I think what we can be confident in, confident in yeah. quotation marks, is going to be messy. Right? Yeah. And it's not clear and present now, but it will be within a couple of months. The other aspect of this that's also having an impact on markets now that, that we're being mindful of is, so if, if you're the treasury and you can't borrow anymore, you still have obligations, so what do you do? Right. Well, one of the things you do is you run down your cash balances. So yeah. the treasury has a bank account at the Fed. It's called a the general treasury, account, right? treasury General Account. Yeah. has about $600 billion in it. And if you can't borrow, then you draw down that cash. Right. But that has an interesting effect on the economy because if you think about, usually the, the treasury is borrowing money, so soaking up cash. Mm -hmm. But if they can't borrow, they're using their cash, so putting it into the system. And one of the things that does is it also offsets the Fed's quantitative tightening. So if you step back and think about it. It's inflationary. Well, quantitative tightening, what the Fed is doing yeah. is they're selling bonds and no. taking cash out. But the U.S. Treasury is not selling bonds and putting cash in. Right. So they're offsetting one another. So anyway, summing all of this up is there is a window from now till, again, somewhere between June and October where this, at least in the near term, is kind of a tailwind to markets in the economy. But that's going to be a, a temporary factor that is going to turn into a headwind at some point. We don't know exactly when, but we're mindful that this is kind of lurking out there for for later in the year, and it's certainly one of the factors is contributing to us wanting to be, uh, again, more cautious in terms of our, our risk posture. Does that mean that you don't own U.S. Treasuries? No, we still own plenty yeah. of U.S. Treasuries, but we're very mindful about the tenor and the size. <laughs> right. right. Okay. Fair enough. A few questions around the world. So European markets, we've seen there in the red. Ultimately, your thoughts, you know, can they weather the inflation story? They're really at the beginning of their rate rising rate raising cycle. We don't know how far they can go either, though. What do you think about Europe? So uh, a couple of things there. First, you mentioned, can they weather the storm, which is an interesting way of putting that, it. Because, that is how our, our person, our friend who's well, joining us here today has put it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. fantastic phraseology because 
The outperformance of EFI in Europe in particular over the past several months is basically due to the weather, which you know is kind of frustrating if you're a financial person and you're poring over economic data and balance sheets and income statements. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is everyone last fall was worried about the gas situation and worried about you know the economy shutting down in Europe because you know pictures of, of folks on the street in in Berlin or in Paris you know huddling in front of barrel fires Sorry. and that's and the weather's been great it's been a very warm winter in Europe and so the worst has been avoided that's actually been a lot of the uplift in European markets i don't think longer term too much has changed there is still an economy that has a lot of challenges it's also an economy that you know unlike as we were talking about with the US isn't really going to be able to bear very much tightening without uh, going into recession. Yeah. And again, it's one of the reasons why we want to favor the U.S. dollar is, you know, the, the European Central Bank is closer to the, the beginning of its rate tightening cycle. It'll be very difficult for them to get above two and a half, three percent. The Fed is going to five percent plus. Right. And so that advantage for the U.S. dollar, at least in our judgment, is still going to persist. Right for right. quite some time. There's so many more tools when they're just up higher and they have more ability to cut. I mean, so it just sounds like Europe never really, and, and Canada to an extent has a bit of a ceiling there. So the U.S. isn't really a different story. It is sense. a different story. And, you know, we're mindful of the fact that the U.S. dollar has generally been weak from, call it, September, October of last year to earlier this year. Mm -hmm. And that was part of this, you know, kind of exuberance that we had with respect to growth remaining resilient, inflation coming down, again, this kind of Goldilocks environment. But again, that, that's not sustainable. And in the meantime, positioning, which is a key pillar of our asset allocation process, people were over their skis being long the dollar as of September, October. Yeah. They're now short the dollar, which opens up some prospect, again, including today, for the U.S. dollar to do somewhat better. So we do think, you know, you're asking about time frames. Mm. Short term is very difficult. Long term is too long term. So when we try to focus on for our active asset allocation positioning is more of a medium term 12 to 18 month view. And there again, for both forecast purposes and defense purposes, we still think the US dollar is uh, is the right way to be positioned. So do you anticipate more increases for the Bank of Canada? Or do you think that they truly have paused? I mean, they said they paused. Yeah, they, they really want to be done. <laughs> okay. Time will tell whether they're actually done. I'm, I'm sure they're, they're upset, to use the technical economic policy term. <laughs> they're upset because they said in January, you know, four and a half is enough, we're done. And then you get a blowout jobs report, you get That's higher right. inflation data. So, I, I mean, my personal prediction is they will try to weather that storm, to use the earlier yep. phrase. And, and say, okay, we know monetary policy works with a lag, we've done a lot of tightening, we're gonna stay at four and a half for a while, but whether that level is ultimately enough to get the kind of decline in inflation that they wanna see, again, only time will tell. If you have a lot of Canadians who cannot, let's say in the next six months, afford their mortgages, and therefore we see, and, and that could be for various reasons, it could be job cuts or it could be just too high, will they cut? It is hard for me to believe that the Bank of Canada is going to be willing to cut unless and until they see inflation on a track to get back to the 2% target. Okay. That target is sacrosanct. That is their goal. And obviously, they've been missing their goal. And what they need to see to be willing to ease is they need to see very clear evidence that inflation is headed back down enough and the economy is slack enough 
to really be confident that inflation is getting back to target. Could it happen? Sure. Mm -hmm. But you know, I can tell you as somebody that's been involved in, in monetary policy deliberations, yeah, it's you a pretty, the Bank of Canada. I did. Yeah. And you know, was was part of the you know, governing council process and was actually talking about what we're gonna do right. with interest rates. And one thing I can tell you is so the decision not to hike is actually pretty easy, which is to say, yeah, four and a half, you've kind of done enough, we'll see. Maybe it is, because we, we often say, like, it's still a decision. It's still a decision, <laughs> but the, the, the contrast I would draw is it's easy relative to the decision to actively cut yeah. rates. Right, right. So it's a lot harder to convince yourself to say the economy is sufficiently weak and inflation is sufficiently low that we're actively going to add stimulus. It's a lot easier to say, well, we just won't tighten anymore. But actually turning around and cut, cutting is a big deal and, and I, it's very hard to see. Are, are you comfortable with sort of this term that gets thrown around that we are actually in a new regime? Is that, I mean, is that appropriate for people to be speaking this or is it a return to normal on some level? I mean, how, I know it's semantics, but I'm kind of curious whether certain terms are acceptable to you. So certain terms are sometimes acceptable to me. Are yeah. we still talking about regimes? Or? Yeah, like, like would you call this a new regime? Like we are in a, a um, more a higher inflation regime. So I think we're, the, the way that I would put it is we're in a newly volatile inflation regime. So the characteristics of the That's past 30 years yeah. was, yes, the inflation was low, but it was inflation was stable. That's right. So it was 2%-ish. Right now, you have a period where inflation went up to nine, and it's probably going back to two, but maybe temporarily going back to six. So inflation is volatile, and what's really important about that inflation volatility is that's the thing that gets you positive correlations between stocks and bonds. Right. Mm -hmm. So even if you don't know where inflation is going, if you just premise that this is a regime where that inflation anchor has been lost and is going to be more volatile, which I think is is a forecast you can make with some confidence, that erodes the confidence that you can have that stocks are going to hedge bonds. And again, it's one of the things that, yeah, that we've been focused on for some time. We've been talking about where, you know, I run 60-40 funds, more or less. Yeah. So that Mostly means... 80 billion under management? Close to yep. that. And so what that means is the structure has both stocks and bonds in it. And we have to think very carefully in an environment where you're not getting as negative a correlation between the two, right. how you protect funds, how you manage risk. And as I mentioned, one of the things we're doing is using currency more. Right. We have another, uh, a number of other levers that we can use, but, but maybe the upshot would be for a long time, it was actually you know, easy and fruitful to just say, I'm going to take my 60, I'm going to take my 40, I can index it, whatever, and it's going to be fine. This new regime, if it is that, is not nearly as amenable to, to that strategy being fine. What do we need? What, what, what do you, give us a sense of what you are watching for. Okay, so there's lots of data to come out. Every two weeks, there's going to be more data coming out that's going to be important, actually. I mean, it's, it's, it's never going to end. But what... What should perhaps investors know that, that you're looking at? So we look at everything and we worry about know. everything. Yeah. And, and as a multi-asset class portfolio, you know, there's everything in, in every individual asset class mm -hmm. uh, to worry about. I mean, what I'm trying to do personally at this point is keep my eyes on the medium term and not so much the short term. And because I think there's actually more certainty in the medium term than the short term in the sense that, as I said, we know where this is going to end up. We know that the Fed has to tighten to get the economy down to get inflation under control. 
And if it's not doing on its own, they just have to go further to, to make that happen. So we kind of know the end point. We don't know the path to get there. So rather than getting too caught up in the, the daily or weekly twos and fros of is inflation strong? Is it weak? Is that a good payrolls number? You know, what have you? We're really trying to focus on that. Here is the known policy strategy. Here is the outcome that is necessary. And when the market gets too far over its skis one way or the other, we'll, we'll tend to take the other side. Are there green shoots anywhere that you would comment on? I mean, I'm sure there's lots of them, but are there any that are of interest to you at this stage? I mean, there are clearly green shoots cyclically in parts of Asia. So there's a very different tempo to the COVID shutdowns in places right. like Japan and China. And they're just emerging from what we emerged from you know, 12 months, 18 months ago. And so there is clearly a cyclical upswing underway in those areas. And it's something we're taking advantage of in our allocations, because if you do have these unsynced economic cycles where US and Canada are more negative and China and Japan are more positive, we have the opportunity to allocate in emerging markets in EFI on the Japan side to take advantage of that, that cyclical uplift. So we're actually overweight emerging markets even amid a, a more kind of constrained overall equity posture. Mm -hmm. And we have, uh, as you know, uh, a couple of different capabilities in EM or um, historically quite good at generating alpha for us there. So that's a, a key holding for us in, in this environment. And it's one I just let me mention, the rising US dollar that I was talking about tends to not be great right. for emerging markets. But to some degree, it's evaluating various levels of risk at this point. And we think that the cyclical uplift in EM is enough to outweigh the risk that the U.S. dollar is going to continue to go up and provide a headwind that way. Fascinating. David Wolf, a pleasure to speak with you. The time has just flown by. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.